Hello and welcome to another interesting conversation on our positive podcast episodes. Today's episode, I interview a remarkable person, Jochenan Palter, who happens to be the founder of Fresh Start Trauma Center. And we discuss a variety of topics leading to his personal journey that led to his establishment of the center, as well as his incredible insights and reflections on what is an HSP, a highly sensitive person, and how we can help them flourish and grow. So sit back, enjoy, and be ready to learn something new that you may have not known before. If you're interested in hearing more podcasts, you can check it out on A Positive Podcast, as well as you can check out my website, apositivecoach.com, if you would like to set up a coaching session or a consultation. Wishing you a very positive day. I'm Razel Schusterman. In addition, the response to this podcast has been phenomenal. People have reached out and want more information about how to raise an HSP in ORCID, what is the correct way to deal with ORCIDs, and how to, you know, better their lives if they are a HSP themselves. So if you're curious to learn more about all of this, please reach out to me at Razel at JewishPeabody.com, Razel at JewishPeabody.com, and I will add you to our email list. We are putting together a Zoom workshop with Yochanan Palter, which will help guide us and teach us tools and tips on how to raise our highly sensitive children. Thank you, Yechanan Palter, for taking the time to do this interview. Today's podcast is going to be a little different and exciting. Looking forward to this. This is a very interesting topic. Today we also have, I have the privilege of having my husband sitting in with us and my husband, Rabbi Nechaim Shusterman, who is kind of like my manager and helps me set up interviews and comes across interesting opportunities and then shares them with me. So today I have my husband sitting in with us. He Hi. may participate. Hi, everybody. Hello, hello. And, you know, most of the people are people that I've interviewed are, are well known in their own right. In this case, Nehemia met Yechanan Palter via a series of Ashkacha Pratis events. And I have not spoken to Yechanan prior to today. It's my first time meeting and talking with him. But based on my husband's conversation with him, he insisted that I must do this interview and hear what the message that Yechanan is sharing, because it's really important. Um, my husband also has many questions for Yechanan that he'd like to ask and get answers on. So I think that's going to add to the conversation. And full disclosure, until a few weeks ago, I didn't know who you were, even though I had heard about the work that you do, Yechanan, and we learned that you are the founder and the executive director of Fresh Start. Um, Rabbi Shays Taub has been talking about it, and he's been talking about trauma, 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 and a lot of it was connected to the Fresh Start Center. For those of you who are not familiar yet with the Fresh Start Center, here's a bit from their website. However, most notably, they are the first and only Jewish Orthodox intensive trauma center with Rabbanim and Jewish leaders 
not only supporting them, but who are either part of the rabbinic advisor team, like Rabbi Shays Taub, or actually on the clinical staff itself, like Rabbi Shimon Russell, who I cannot wait to meet, who actually trains the staff himself. So Fresh Start is an intensive five-day retreat designed for men and women who want to understand, process, and heal from unresolved trauma, neglect, and abuse. It's set in a serene Michigan island right off of Lake Erie, quiet, breathtaking surroundings and luxury accommodations, and it creates the ideal backdrop for deep emotional healing and profound rediscovery of self. Some of the top names in the field of trauma are part of the staff and highly skilled master level therapists. Their program is inspired by the work of some of the foremost giants in clinical trauma work, healing and recovery, including Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, Dr. Janina Fisher, Dr. Peter Levine, Pia Melody, Dr. Ken Adams, and others. So let's get right into it. Um, Yechanan, tell us a little bit about yourself and more specifically, how it is that you got into this line of work that, you are, that you're in right now and how you got into founding the Fresh Start Treatment Center. I know that you were inspired to begin this as a result of your personal journey with your daughter. Please share as much as you're comfortable to share with us. Uh, good morning, and thank you both. Nice to meet you. And yes, full disclosure, this is the first time we're meeting uh, Mr. Schusterman as well, and your husband and I did chat a little bit. Um, so my name is Jochen Polter. I am from Detroit, born and bred here, 43 years old, married, six children, Kanainahara. Um, I am not a mental health professional. I'm not a therapist. I have no certifications. I have no degrees. I'm not in school. So um, just disclaimer, anything I share here is either my personal gut, but most likely it is stuff that I have read, watched, or learned from a variety of other people as I'm sure it will come out in this interview. Um, so I am a, uh, I went to the Lubavitch Cheder system here in Detroit, went out of town to yeshivas, um, got married, uh, did a three-year stint on Schlichus here in Michigan. I then uh, decided to go into business and I went off into business in 2005 and I've been um, a businessman ever since. Going back about five, six years ago, my oldest daughter um, started showing signs of struggle, and we'll, we'll get into that a little later, I'm sure, but um, started showing signs of struggle and challenge, and I think she was about 13, 14 then. Um, I... Uh, Yes, yeah, so about five, six years ago, our oldest daughter, um, Manucha, um, started showing signs of, of, of struggling. Um, my wife and I, Baruch Hashem, were astute enough to realize that there was an issue. Yedia Samachla's Chatzia Rafua. And I remember calling everybody that I knew, including people that I didn't know to learn about this topic. In fact, I took off two months of work completely, didn't show up to the office, didn't do anything. And the only thing I focused on was figuring out what 
we as parents can do. Um, along the way, I started watching videos. Like I said, I my tagline has always been, I'll talk to anybody who's willing to listen. Um, just because I, I just wanted to gain as much knowledge and information on the topic. Um, and I started coming across a variety of books and videos, and I guess you could say it became an obsession. Um, we'll get into details, I'm sure, in a little bit, but fast forward, my daughter went through a, a journey that we, we have now come to know as uh, at-risk or OTD or off the derech. Um, today, Baruch Hashem, she's an amazing, incredible young lady. Um, pursuing a life um, in our community, in Yiddishkeit, growing. Um, and frankly, as we and as her and I and my wife look back, um, it was really a bracha, although it was incredibly challenging and difficult, the amount of growth that we had as a family and as people um, really dare I say, was worth it. And it was not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, I also want to put out a disclaimer that I think in talking to parents, which I've done a lot of in the past, people ask details, which again, I'm, I'll be happy to share as we go through this. But the idea, I think the main concept everybody should keep in mind is that a struggling child is a struggling child the degree and the intensity of the struggle is somewhat less relevant. Um, the pain that a parent has see, seeing a child struggle is, is great enough that, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that people don't take my particular story or anybody's particular story and says, oh, well, you were able to do that because your child didn't have this challenge or this challenge. Those are all um, nuances in the story, um, but like I said, Baruch Hashem today, she's doing amazing. It was an incredible journey, and what happened was along the way, people started finding out, because I was not um, shy or bashful about the journey we were going through, and I started getting calls from a variety of people, frankly, around the world, including Shluchim, um, and I would talk to them and I would be passionate and I'd be chock full of good ideas. At least I thought I was. Um, and I'd send them videos and I'd educate them on the topic and everybody would feel wonderful. And, and then I'd follow up two weeks later or four weeks later. And it was like, I talked to like my words fell on deaf ears. Um, I think Chase Taub may have said sometimes in his, in his line of work as well, he'll give, he'll give the greatest speech on a particular topic with all the Maramakaimas and all the, everything that a speech would need, the stories, it'll be incredible, mind-blowing. And yet the people are not able to, to move forward. So I found the same thing with parents. And six months ago, seven months ago, along the way, I became very close with a variety of people, including Rabbi Shimon Russell, um, and it was really Rip Shimon's um, insight. In fact, it was a, a three-minute video that he has that personally changed my whole perception. Um, 
but um, basically some other people in Detroit as well are involved in this topic and, and um, Rip Shimon mentioned in the past the need for a trauma center dedicated to from people. There's, there are a lot of places out there, um, you know, most notably the Meadows, which is known as an addiction center, but they also have a full outpatient five-day intensive trauma center. They're out in Arizona. Um, they, do, they do great work, but at the end of the day, our culture is unique. Our trauma is unique. Um, and I just got so frustrated of putting all this energy into talking to parents. And then, of course, it hit me that until we, the parents, work through our own trauma, we're not going to be able to be there for our children. And as um, I'm hoping, and I imagine, Mr. Schusterman, you've said this numerous times, and if you interviewed Chase Taub, you've heard this numerous times, that the impact that a parent can have on a child is times a thousand what any rehab center can. So um, that was it. It was uh, full-blown frustration that led to the creation of Fresh Start um, to really help adults and parents um, work through their own unresolved trauma and childhood issues so they can not only heal their own lives, but be there for their children and, and hopefully um, stem the tide of, of at risk and, and challenges that we're seeing everywhere. Right. That's, that's helpful. I have so many questions on that alone. I'm just going to try to, so there's a few things that you said that were interesting. You said that your daughter was, it was manifesting as <clears throat> off the derech. And it's so interesting because to me personally, like that's not an issue. Like, yeah, of course we all want our children to be from and, and our values and living our, our life that we choose. But to me, it's, you know, it's so obvious that when a child is choosing a different path, it's not because they are being brave and saying, this isn't for me. It's because they're struggling with something underlying. And that's just a symptom of what's going on. So if your child is pulling their skirt up really high and doesn't want to keep Shabbos or oh, I'm just giving some, you know, examples, not always does it mean this, but it usually is an underlying that there's something else that they're struggling with. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, 100%. And I want to give a caveat. When I say, um, when I say manifesting, um, the, the off the derrick journey was the end of her journey, not the beginning. Huh. Um, the symptoms that were showing up were, you know, loss of appetite, sadness, depression, tremendous yeah. anxiety, um, just the loss of interest in life, mm -hmm. um, and just all those other things. Um, right. You know, like I said, the and, and as you indicated, 100%. Okay. The, uh, just, the, struggle wanna... with, the struggle with Yiddishkeit is is simply a symptom. I forgot who says this. I think it's Robinson, Slavi Wolf, Jungreis. I try to give credit. Yeah. But it is due. But I think she says the goal is healthy, happy, from. Those are the steps. In that order. In that order, and okay. um, that we 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 followed that guidance and i share that all the time if you if you if they're healthy they'll be happy and if they're happy they will hopefully find the beauty and the value in, in yiddishkeit and Torah. that's right that's a very good point um there's so many questions i have about this treatment center also in addition but well let's get to that in a minute um because one of the things you said is and, I, and maybe i i inferred this but you said something about that 
this center is for parents to go to to resolve their unresolved issues. Are you saying that a parent of a child that has that parent that has a child that's struggling needs to go to these centers? Um, similar to like Avi Fishov's method, where his whole thing is come learn about the parenting style, learn about yourself, and then you'll be able to connect to your child better. Or is this for people that are have unresolved trauma? And maybe some people will say that everyone has some form of unresolved trauma um, that need to go to the center. So which one would it be? Um, so yes, Avi does. Avi does amazing work, and his 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 record clearly indicates his that his passion and his um, insight and his ability to convey these important messages about you know the connection and the bond between parents and children is the most powerful. Am I saying that every parent of a child at risk should come to Fresh Start? Um, I'm going to avoid answering that question. Okay. Uh, what I will say is, though, is that our center was built with the intention to serve the population above age 25 that either already have children or will have children people that are on their own personal journey of recovery and growth. And the fact is, this is an undisputable fact, is that when an adult, a parent works through their own trauma, it impacts everybody around them, most significantly their children. And I would dare say it impacts their children more than it would impact their spouse. Wow. Um, both uh, negatively and positively. So our center is built for adults that are seeking to work through their trauma, but naturally by doing that, um, their children will be tremendously positively impacted because they will be able to be there for their kids in a way that their children need them, which in turn will allow their children to um, grow up with, with the proper attachment, the proper connection, the proper relationships with their parents. Let me jump in with a question on that. And I know it's gonna be your opinion, not your clinical um, opinion, because you made it clear that you're not a clinician. Would you, you know, flipping the table around, would you say if there are children who are struggling, it is almost because the parents have their own trauma or can kids struggle in a vacuum even if the parents have had the most idealistic, most wonderful life and have sustained no trauma whatsoever? Um, okay, a, a good question. And thank you for saying that this is my, my personal opinion, not medical or professional or anything, um, but just the insight and what I've read and what I've studied. Um, is it possible? The answer is yes. I think as you, Mr. Schusterman indicated, um, we all have unresolved childhood issues. Um, I forgot which, I think it's Dr. Janina Fisher, who said not every traumatic event is traumatizing. Right. Those are, those are two different things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, but I think getting to your point, Rav Nechemia, um, there are two factors that I believe go into a child being at risk. One is the home and the parental connection and the ability for the parent to connect with the child. And yes, the ability of a parent to connect with their child will be hindered and disrupted depending on how much unresolved trauma a parent has. Um, 
you know, I take a simple pasuk like V'yahavta L'reocha Kamoicha, which, as everybody knows, also applies to our children. Actually, maybe people don't know that. I think Shays and Rababi and others and Rikshima Russell mention that all the time. So it happens to also apply to our children. But that pasuk basically means that if we as humans and as parents don't love ourselves, it is physically impossible for us to live, love our children. It's impossible. That's it. If I'm, I'm saying that I'm recording here, a child is a piece of us, shlesha shutvim ba'adam, um, and it, it, it's a, if we don't love ourselves, and we're not talking gaiva, we're not, we're just talking basic self-acceptance. So, Yochanan, a lot of people don't don't who listen to the podcast don't speak Hebrew. So, if you don't mind to translate the, the verses that you quote, the Ahafta Larecha Kamocha means love your fellow Jew as yourself, which means you have to love yourself first in order to love your fellow Jew. And the other phrase I said was Shlosha Shutvim Ba'adam, the uh, Torah, the Talmud teaches us that there are three partners in the creation of mankind, God, mother, and father. Those three are all partners in the creation of a child. So a child is a piece of us, a child is an extension of us, and we need to love ourselves and respect ourselves and have self-worth and self-dignity in order to give that over to our child. So yes, trauma will certainly impact the ability for a parent to properly connect with the child. So that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is the child themselves. And one of the things, Nehemia, that I think you were excited that I introduced you to, and I guess you've always felt it, but and I know Rabbi Talva has discussed it, but is this concept of highly sensitive people, HSP. Um, when we say the word HSP, when I say the word HSP, I'm not talking about whether or not they get offended quickly. <laughs> I'm talking about their five senses, sight, sound, smell, etc., um, work at a much higher, more profound and deep level. And that impacts the child, it impacts the brain in a variety of different ways. And it actually explains why very often you can have two children from the exact same family with the exact same upbringing and, and the um, and they will have a very, very different outcome. In fact, in my personal story, you know, we have a son and a daughter and they're one year apart. They basically went through the same in their childhood. Um, and one might say that they took completely opposite paths, certainly during Manucha's journey. Um, so the question is the child themselves, what type of child are they? Do they qualify as a highly sensitive person? If so, that has ramifications. And then the question is, are the parents healthy enough where they're giving their children what they need? As Rabbi Russell always mentions, the four S's, safe, secure, seen, and soothed. Are they able to give that to their children? Um, and it's those two components. I'm being general because I know you have a lot of questions on that topic, so. Well, no, actually it's, it's great that you're saying this because I want to hear more about um, HSP, highly sensitive people. I'm curious to hear more about this. Um, we know that Chase Taub talked about this a little bit in our podcast that we had together. He put it as that, you know, HSP are people or kids who their embodiment is their trauma, meaning that just existing, or maybe to use spiritual terminology, they're be that 
they're being separated from the Kisei Kavod, from Hashem's holy, you know, place from the heaven, is something that they feel distinctly and trauma it's traumatic for them. And in secular terms, you might say HSP, but can you explain a little bit more what an HSP is so we can have a little bit more understanding of that before we go into what's the right treatment or how can we help them? Yes, and I, I might get in trouble here, but you know what? Where am I? Yeah, let's do that. Let's get in trouble. Uh, let's get in trouble. So I'm, I, I, I'm very close. I consider Rabbi Chase a good friend of mine, and I meant to ask him about this because I did hear him say the embodiment yeah. itself is traumatic, and I take a little... Um, well, isn't that like the thought of Rechaim David? He talks about that, like just the, you know, but Malachal, I don't want to go, right? I'm not ready to leave. Right, that's, that's right. Whole... So my, but my, my issue with that statement is is twofold. Number one is I don't know that I literally agree with it. I know what he's trying to say, and I, I would like to say it slightly differently. Okay. Um, I know what he's trying to say, but I, I, I also get afraid that that is, that is a statement that can be taken by people as very, as being hopeless. Huh. Okay. You're basically saying my entire existence is just going to be one traumatic event. So I believe, I believe what he's saying, what he's saying is accurate, that there's no question that a highly sensitive person's existence could be traumatizing, but there's a reason. And, and there, and there are, there is hope, I believe, and there are solutions okay. to make it non-traumatizing. So going back to this HSP concept, there were really two, there are two major works on this topic that was researched. One is Dr. Elaine Aaron, who was really the, I guess you could say the lead author of research on this topic and coined this term. Uh, people can Google her, Dr. Elaine Aaron, HSP, highly sensitive person. She has several books on it. She also has an assessment that people can take both for themselves and for their children to see whether or not they're highly sensitive. So she spent 30 years studying this topic and researching it thoroughly. She's one world-renowned expert. The other one is a Dr. Thomas Boyce, who is an MD and actually came, at the, came to the same conclusion, but from a different direction. He noticed that certain kids would just get sick more often mm -hmm. and that a large percentage of the diseases in the world were focused on a small percentage of the childhood population. Um, and, and even within families, and he was like, why, you know, what is it about these kids? So he came, he came at it from a different angle with very similar conclusions. The name of his books and, you know, research is called Orchid versus Dandelion. An orchid is obviously a beautiful flower that takes a lot of care. Um, and when it's tended to properly, it blossoms beautifully. And when it's not, it could be dead for two, three, four years. And all of a sudden it shows back up. A dandelion, at least where I'm based out of Detroit, we've been living them them our whole lives. You know, you cut them, you think they're all gone, you walk out of your backyard, you feel all good about yourself. Two weeks later, they're back like nothing happened. What both of these researchers found is it's about an 80-20 rule. 80% 80 of the population is non-HSP, 80% of the population is a dandelion, 20% of the population will be an orchid, 20% of the population will be a highly sensitive person. I just want to interject that I love that because I love that it's taking it and saying the orchid is the one that's unique and special. It's not like, oh, those poor 20% are crazies. 
because a lot of a lot of our history on mental health has been you know putting it in this box and saying this is a struggle this is terrible we need to change it but here you're kind of giving it a different approach it's an orchid it's a beautiful thing and i think just even that mind shift to the way we talk to our children telling them that you are an orchid you are special you are unique and different but you are loved and beautiful just that it's just yeah so so actually actually there's um and you know it's funny because when i had these conversations with with the dandelion type people you know the minute i get too complimentary of orchids Uh, shut down but like yes, I said, yes, yes. I, I, we're, taking, I we're, taking risks, we're taking risks on this podcast. So let's oh, just, let's let's, let's so specifically Dr. Boyce, <clears throat> Dr. Boyce did a study where they followed a group of orchids and dandelions for 30 years. And what they started out as early on when the child was one or two years old, they did a variety of tests to gauge their reaction. So one of them would be they put lemon juice on the tongue of the child. So some kids spit it out and other kids had this whole, you know, intense, you know, ill, disgusting, gross, you know, and for five minutes. Right. They did that. They put them into the room with bright lights, loud music. They did a variety of tests and they sort of started separating out the orchids from the dandelions. Again, the HSPs from the non-HSPs, same concept. 30 years later, when they were adults, what they found is that the orchids were either at the top of their game, whatever that might be, motherhood, education, professional, community member, leader, whatever it might be, they were either in the most um, best place possible in terms of their ability to impact the world and and take on whatever tasks they were taking, or they were suicidal on the streets. Wow. So the way, and while the, and now the dandelions weren't like that. So the way I try to explain it is that the, the, um, the speedometer of an orchid or an HSP goes from zero to a hundred. While the non-HSP, the dandelion will bounce between 30 and 70 or 30 and 80. But the, the orchid, their, their greatest strength and their greatest kachas are also their greatest weaknesses. The good news is, is that when people read the book and start to understand themselves and watch the videos and study up on the topic, there are actual practical tips for how they and their spouses, and again, if they're children, how parents and that's obviously the focus of our conversation today, how parents can, you know, work through it to not only, for lack of a better word, accept this uniqueness of the child, but frankly, there's nothing to accept about it. It's an incredible bracha, it's an incredible gift. Um, HSPs and orchids will typically be the most creative. They'll have tremendous leadership skills. Um, their honesty is second to none. Uh, I always joke, you don't, and it, I mean, right, let me back up here. There's a, um, there's a safer called um, which was written by the Piyotzetzner Rebbe, the Eish Kodesh, who was the rabbi in the Warsaw Ghetto in the last years before the war. 
And one of the lines that he writes in his safer is that if a child misbehaves, it is the responsibility and I'm, I'm, these are my words, so don't hold it against me. But the concept is if a child is misbehaving, it's the responsibility of the parent or the teacher to do a reckoning, a soul searching reckoning of themselves of what did they do to not connect with that child in a positive way that day that caused that child to misbehave. Now, this was in the 1930s. Wow, powerful. That, that hasn't changed. So I, I just want to go back to the point about- I think though a lot of people have such, when they hear that, parents of people that are like, it is so, it brings up such a reaction, like real reaction. They cannot even hear it. I can think of many people in my head. Right so so what I actually- I didn't do anything. I was loving. I was kind. I was good. I gave them everything they wanted. I was there for them. I, I watched them. I, I gave them attention beyond. You did. So, so the good news is the reason why I said that statement is because I'm, I was a little afraid that after this podcast, my phone would ring yeah, with parents right. with answers. I believe now I pretty much all but guaranteed that nobody will call me. Ah, <laughs> so they I, don't hear this you're saying they right right um in fact when if a parent does call me these days i tell them i tell them beforehand i that there is a 97 percent chance that they will not call me back more yeah. than two times um so now now just going back to the point rabbi talb said where he said their existence is traumatizing there's a reason for that the reason for that is, is because one of the blessings and curses of the ORCID and the HSP is authenticity. The expression in, in Hebrew is that what we are on the inside, we have to express on the outside. They cannot live a fake life. They cannot watch hypocrisy. They simply can't. So if an ORCID or an HSP can understand themselves enough and learn how to balance because the world at least to the untrained eye is full of hypocrisy um, now there's reasons behind it but it, it appears to be hypocrisy like how could a person do this you know mitzvah and at the same time be doing something that's you know not appropriate i see nechemia is getting excited here no 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 I, I i'm resonating because you know without <coughs> much of you know your daughter is old enough she was able to give permission our kids are still younger but all of our kids spend time at the local jcc which is you know not super you know um religious and they all had no problem in mingling with the other kids but one of the kids couldn't make couldn't become okay with the fact that other kids might not be wearing the yarmulke you know and it, it, as you get old you understand that everyone is religious and people get to different places at different times but it, it, it was like an ongoing struggle and and no amount of explaining because he wasn't he, he it, for him it was too sensitive or, or it can be as simple as uh how come they get more you know uh, screen time you know why, why did they earn five you know everything has to be absolutely fair right you know? and, and it's it's what it, one of the turning moments with with our daughter was when i finally accepted the fact that i understand that i will never understand her so we have this idea in our head as parents that we have to understand our children. And, and, and yes, that, but that word has a lot of connotations. Um, you have to be there for your child. You have to be supportive of your child. But if you are a non-HSP, 
if you are a dandelion, I guarantee you, you will never understand your orchid. Hmm. And the more, and, and, the, and the problem is, as parents, the way we work through things is, well, we want to do what's in the best interest of our child. And therefore, I have to understand why that child is reacting that way or feeling that way. So it might be a situation where they come home from school. I mean, I remember a story where my wife was once telling a story at supper about a, a marriage couple. There was a marriage. She was taking a marriage um, therapy type course. And it was a husband and wife where the father of the husband, it was in his 90s, and he was in the house, and he needed supper prepared. And the wife ended up preparing for him. And then she went on to the story. But the story was about the husband and wife and how they interacted with each other. 30 minutes later, my daughter is asking me, but I, I, I don't understand, why didn't the father, why didn't the husband make supper for his father? Mm. And I was like, that that wasn't the point. That was like the 1% of the story. It was like completely irrelevant to the story. But the HSP gets hooked on because their sensitivity. Why wouldn't the father want to make supper for his, or the husband want to make supper for his father? Now we, so what do non-HSPs do? What do dandelions do? We're like, what do you, get over it, man. I mean, that's, that, that wasn't the point of the story. New, move on. Now, when you do that to an HSP or to an orchid, what you basically do is one of two things. You either tell them they're crazy, that their brain is not processing information properly, or you tell them that they are alone. Pick your poison. Lonely. I don't know, I don't know which one's worse. They both are terrible. Yeah. They're both. So when I say you don't understand, when I accept the fact that my daughter processed things differently, I didn't go into a rant and rave about why you're focusing on this part. We talked about it for a minute or two and we, you know, we processed it and then we moved on. She felt understood. She didn't feel crazy. In fact, today even, I, I'd say it jokingly, but it's an open debate. She knows that I will never understand her fully. And that's because I'm not an HSP. It's hard for me to understand her, but I've accepted that. And therefore I could be there for her because it's not about me. I don't have to have the same emotions as you do and the same reaction as you do to situations. What I need to do is I need to accept the fact that you are a chalak elikami mamish, a holy soul implanted by God, and that you are given your own gifts and your own talents and your own emotions. And I need to respect that and be there in support of you when you are processing a feeling or an event in a way that works for you. It's not for me to tell you how to process an event and how to feel. It's for me to accept that this is your process of processing things. Well, let me interject for a minute. So if, if we're a parent, um, if you're a parent, anybody listening here of an HSP, or maybe, <laughs> maybe they themselves are an HSP um, or an ORCID. So, and you said that at least 20% of people are, are according to statistics, so if meeting if, if somebody has five children, at least one of them statistically um, will be a HSP. So what can you do practically to help this child? I mean, you know, what can we what can we 
what can be done to, you know, make this pain less, uh, the, the, you know, of the HSP or what can we be doing? Or I'll take it a step further. You know, a lot of people will say, should we be forcing HSPs to do things that are out of their comfort zone? I mean, I've been guided by many different, uh, you know, with regard to eating issues and say, you got to force them, starve them out. They'll get to it. Or, you know, maybe they're super sensory and the, and the school uniform and the, the collar of the shirt bothering them. And you're like, well, you need to go to the school. You need to wear the shirt. Do we make accommodations? Because um, they're living in a big, bad world, right? And they need to learn at some point. Um, so my question is, what can we do for these HSP? What is, you told us what it is. Now tell us, what do we do about it? Um, so um, a few answers to that. Number one is, as you indicated, a typical large family <clears throat> will most likely have one, if not more HSPs. Um, you may also find that if you have, you know, five kids and two of them are HSPs, the HSPs will take up 80% of your time. Mm -hmm. um, even, even before any at-risk behavior shows up. And there's a reason. Um, HSPs, because, because they are authentic, they cannot have anything on their chest. Okay, If it builds up, it implodes. And it implodes fast. Um, so, number one is, get the books, read up on it. Dr. Elaine Aaron, the highly sensitive person, Dr. Thomas Boyce, Orchid versus Dandelion, I think is the name of the book. There are YouTube videos from all these people. There's a lot of information on the internet about this topic, it's no secret. In the book, <coughs> they not only explain um, what it is, but they also explain um, and a lot of it is actually meant for the HSP themselves. And depending on the age of your child, you know, there's a lot that you can actually convey to them to tell them they're normal. So at the fresh start, one of the things we started doing is the minute people come, we actually give them the HSP assessment because we find that <coughs> it, if, if, if the team knows that they're an HSP, it just gives us incredible more, incredibly more insight into their makeup and how we can God, God willing, help them. I'm curious the what's, what's uh, I bet, I mean, I'm going to guess here that the love, the amount of people that are coming in there that are probably, I would say 90, hundred um, percent. Pretty, pretty much anybody that will make that commitment and uh, financially, emotionally, and mentally is yes. But I, but I specifically remember, and, and I used to do this for fun because I've done this HSP assessment so many times. And I think you guys took it. So I know most of the questions by heart. So what I would do is when I would start talking to somebody and I smelled that they were an HSP, I would start asking them questions about themselves. And they thought I was like a prophet. Like I knew things about them. And they're like, I was like, let me guess, you don't like scary movies. They're like, how do you know? And I was like, let me guess, um, <clears throat> you like your lights to be dim. <gasps> this guy's weird. Um, so, so, but what I found was specifically again at Fresh Start is we had adults who've been going around their whole life thinking they're crazy or alone. And they were literally in tears reading a book knowing, oh my gosh, that is me to the T. So for both adults and children, if they're capable, just letting them know that they're not crazy. There's this gift 
and it is a gift and it comes with challenges just as any gift comes with challenges money is a gift and money comes with challenges uh, intelligence is a gift and it comes with its own set of challenges no gift comes without challenges hsp is one of those there's nothing inherently crazy nothing bad it's tremendous milus used right they will they will they will change the world in hsp um, so number one is buying the books reading them and understanding it number two is <clears throat> making a point to um, uh, re remember keeping in mind that hsp means that there are sensitivities which means when you talk at a certain noise level they hear it times three um, in fact i remember when um there were times that i think i told us to you know like i would be in the basement in my home and my daughter was two floors up and i was whispering and she would hear us and it was i was like it's physically impossible for you to hear me i kept doing research because that's what i do um and i'm 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 pretty certain that this is what i read i'm i'm, I'm only doubting myself because i don't remember where i read it um but i'm pretty certain that what I found out was that the temperature in the air, in the earlobes of an HSP is actually slightly higher, which makes, which literally gives them the ability to hear better. So they, when an HSP says, I hear everything, they're not lying. They literally hear more. And it's not because they have less wax in the air than someone else. It's literally like their their physical being is different so <clears throat> i think letting them know letting a child know that they have this gift is is incredibly important number three can i drill down on that for one second you know without shortcutting watching the watching the youtube <clears throat> books give an example you have a kid who's seven eight nine ten you know you know, they're HSP, so therefore they're really typically you know, very smart. But but how would you communicate that to them? Uh, so you so you build you start by building the relationship. I would say that you make a point to talk to them five five minutes a day at minimum when they come home from school about how their day was. There was something in school that's on their mind. Remember, because they're highly sensitive, they pick up on a variety of different things. You might find that your highly sensitive child is actually disturbed by the way another child was treated by a teacher. Yeah, sure. And that's eating them alive. Now they think it's crazy, so they're not gonna bother telling it to you unless you sit down with them on a daily basis and say, Shefala, that's Rabbi Russell's word, I love it. Um, Shefala, how was your day? What happened in school? Anything that's on your, anything you wanna talk about, anything, and, and we don't focus, we're not here to give solutions. The goal is for them to get it off their chest. Mm. So just avoid uh, um, the, 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 the Pasuk from um, Kirkyavas comes to mind. Emar ma'atva say harbei. Say a little and do a lot. There's an, there's, an old, there's an old expression that the previous generation used to say quite often, children are meant to be seen, not to be heard. Mm. Have you ever heard that? Oh yeah, it's a very okay, common. My line is: parents are meant to be seen, not to be heard. I love it. Again, I I, I hope I have shidduchim for my kids by the time I'm done with this. 
Um, nothing I say, nothing I say is, is radical. I mean, we know from a variety of Torah sources, Exodus, the concept of a parent being a dugmachaya, of, of just being a living example, not lecturing the kids. So especially with an HSP, they don't need lectures. I always joke, but I mean it seriously. HSPs don't have to be told the right thing to do. They know the right thing to do more than you do. You have to create the environment, the job. One of the members of our team is Dr. Um, is Dr. Stuart Ablon from Harvard University and Mass General, right around the corner from you guys. Um, he has a program over at Mass General called Think Kids, Think Kids, and it's collaborative problem solving. But his main line is, children will succeed um, not children, uh, we usually say children will succeed if they want. He says children will succeed if they can. It is the, is, it is the responsibility of the adults in the room to create a safe and healthy environment for a child to succeed. Um, and that is, that is times five with an HSP. So, you know, daily communication with, with an HSP child. What about a child who doesn't, is not very talkative? You know, you have okay. HSPs that are very communicative and need to talk on nonstop. And then you have HSPs that you kind of, you could see their mind is racing, they're, they're thinking about things, but they're not necessarily sharing with their parents and not because they're not comfortable. Maybe they have an older sibling that talks too much and they've gotten used to accustomed to not being heard. Maybe they just have it, aren't comfortable sharing like that. So you, it's funny because you, you just said a, um, a conflict in what you just said. First, you said, it's not that they're not sharing because they're not comfortable. And then you said, maybe they have an older sibling who right. talks too much, so no, therefore they are uncomfortable. True. No, that yeah. is definitely very true. Thanks for calling me out on that. I okay. No, so my point, to you is, my point to you is an HSP by nature, in fact, one of the, if you took the assessment, one of the things you'll, they'll ask is, were you considered shy as a child? So you're actually going to find that most HSPs are probably not overly talkative. Now, the reason why they are not overly talkative is because remember, unless a parent is aware of this, they will most likely have given off the impression that they don't understand their child or that they're alone or that they're, again, none of this is intentional. We're talking subtle, but because the HSP picks up on all these different things, so what you'd simply do is you change the narrative and you, you sit down with them and you encourage them to share and open up. And are they gonna do it day one? No, but they're gonna be like, oh, this is interesting. Mommy and Tati, mom and dad were interested in what I had to say, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe they'll, they'll test it. And then, then they'll go a little further. Um, and, and, you know, they'll just keep, they'll keep getting more comfortable with it over time, but they have to be able to communicate. They can't keep things on their chest. Um, they're going to have questions. They will. They will typically be more mature than than non HSPs. Like, you know, if you have a HSP teenage girl versus a regular teenage girl, or you know, or a boy, they might be less into teenage silliness and gossip and stuff like that. They may not want to do all the the, the parties or the sleepovers or the. They're just because their brains are literally processing information. In fact, one of the things in the HSP book is that a, a six hour day for an HSP or a five hour day for an HSP 
their brain works as much as an eight or nine hour day for a regular person. And it's not purposeful. It's just their brain is literally processing information, which means that an HSP, an adult HSP should make a point to take a nap during the day. Like they need to rest their brain and you can't, you can't stop your brain from picking up on cues around. One of the things that I ask when I'm doing this HSP assessment on adults, I'll be like, listen, when you walk into a chasana, if you shoot straight for the hot dogs and blankets and you don't see anything else, you're probably not an HSP. But if, if, if your mind is wandering from when you enter the hall till you get to the hot dogs and blankets and you're picking up on a million different little subtle pieces of information, that's, that's an HSP. And in order to, the brain has to process that information. It's not like it has a choice. And that takes brain power. Therefore, HSPs will be more exhausted. Now, you, Mr. Schusterman, asked some questions about schools and, you know, specifically uniforms. Um, I mean, that's a- Accommodation that, in general. So that's a, that's a loaded question. Um, I cannot, I, I, I dare, dare, I, dare I mention in a joke, but to every joke, there's a little truth. The famous Mark Twain quote, don't let school get in the way of your education. Mm. Um, I mean, yes, schools have rules and that's gonna be on a particular thing and schools have to have rules. It's, I, I, I totally appreciate that. Um, in an ideal world, in my humble opinion, putting an HSP in the school system is um, what qualifies Tsar Balichayim. Um, Rabbi Shusterman, how do you translate Tsar Balichayim? Uh, I'll, I'll give a, a, a para, paraphrase translation. C cruel and unusual punishment. Cruel and unusual punishment, yes. Not because there's anything wrong with the school. The school is amazing, and there are amazing schools out there, but an HSP being put into such an environment is so intense, and and it just, it's it's a lot of work um, so I, I don't want to answer that specific question about the uniform. It's really a broader question of how to help a, a, a HSP child survive in school. Um, but definitely it requires a lot of attentiveness, a lot of communication, uh, working with the school to the best of the ability, and then working to replace, you know, whatever they're not able to get there at home or helping ease it. Um, one other point, just in terms of ideas, is that typically an HSP will be very creative. There's, there's, there's typically a creative side to them, whether it's music, art, you want to save your HSP child, help them develop that side of their creativity. It gives them a sense of purpose. It, it helps process emotions, um, whatever, maybe it's writing, maybe it's poetry. You know, in the in the from circles, especially, depending on the hobby, we tend to run the other direction or fearful, obviously, doing things within the realm of halacha. I'm not saying anything against halacha, but sometimes it's just shtick, or or sometimes say a 14-year-old bacher has this tremendous passion and he's musical, but he's a bacher yeshiva, he's busy learning or attending for Brengans and you guys gonna start learning guitar lessons. Um, the answer is if you if you if you don't want him to be 
a fresh start participant, <laughs> it's way cheaper to get them a guitar. Absolutely. I think today people are, at this point, guitar is not that thing. I'm talking more <laughs> you know, greater things like, you know, creating music in a, in a, in a music, you know, studio. Like now, people, everyone's about, everyone is a guitar player today, I think. Um, so just to close the loop on that one, so I, you made it clear that you don't want to make blanket statements on the system or, or whatnot, but something that Shays had said, which I know Rizal got a lot of feedback on that, was that people, that he, so to speak, he's, he, his words about the school system and, and advocating for your child, and sometimes your child won't fit into a certain class or into a certain school, and being open to doing new things, he says, you know, besides that'll save your child and lots of money to, as a sidebar um, down the road. People, the, a lot of the feedback that Rezo got was, I, I, I'm grateful to Chase for giving us permission to do what we knew we needed to do all along. And it sounds like you're saying a similar thing that, you know, you don't want to make statements about what people should or shouldn't do with their kids, but recognize that if they're literally in pain at school, you're killing them. Yes, I mean, that's a topic that I don't even have to discuss because great minds like Rav Chase and Rav Shima Russell and many others have, have tackled it. Rav Misha Weinberger have discussed this, uh, but there's absolutely no question. In our particular case, it was January of, um, there was a variety of back and forth with my daughter's journey. And in January of 12th grade, we actually took her out of school and homeschooled her for the rest of the year. Um, and we had no problem doing so. And of course, you know, we got the, we got the questions and the, well, how is she, how is she going to um, find the shidduch and get married if she left high school in 12th grade? And I, I and my response was, I'm hopeful that the same God that made shidduchim for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and is still going to be around when my daughter has to get married. And, and if he's not, then I guess I'll probably have bigger problems. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's no question that you can't, you, you, you have to advocate for your kids um, and HSPs and the school system. And it's no fault of the school system. HSPs are a unique breed that have to be tended to um, in, in, a, in a unique way. They're orchids. Um, okay, so let me, let me stop for a second and, and go in a different route. I, I know that you mentioned, Nehemiah mentioned to me that you talked a little bit about the power of the relationship between a father and a child um, to the point that it's even more effective than, than therapy. And then even, you know, I'm always to believe that mother, 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 you know, we're the ones that are pregnant with this child, nursing this child, staying up at night with the child. And it's not just for 12 months. Whoever says that, that's not true. Um, that goes on for many years. And we're the ones that are nurturing and very connected to our children. So, I want to hear a little bit about that, about the whole father and daughter or father and son connection. Um, okay, so disclaimer again, anything that I say on this topic, I'm not a professional. We know that already. I, okay, but I do, I do believe that it is my interpretation of literally the thousands of hours that I've read and studied and watched on this topic and continue to. Um, if I say that's, anything wrong, that's so helpful because people, most people don't have thousands of hours to commit to research and educating themselves. And that's why this kind of podcast could be so helpful to people. Right. Okay. So I'm just saying it's my interpretation of, of, of everything I, I try to quote when I, when I remember it, but okay. So there's this concept, which is already indisputed called attachment. 
Um, childhood attachment is what develops the child. There is a disagreement, disagreement. There's a discussion amongst the experts in the world, um, whether it's the first three years of the child's life, the first five years. I, I like to say, no matter what, by the time your child is seven or eight, their course in life and their uh, view of the world and their view of relationships has already been subconsciously planted in their brain. It does not mean it can't be changed. It just means that a certain set of sort of rules of planet Earth and relationships and trust, a lot of these critical things have been developed. Um, so now you have, you have um, again, the four S's, safe, secure, seen, and soothe. That is what a child needs in order to grow in a healthy attachment way. Safe can mean physically safe. Secure means emotionally secure. You know, so physical safe might mean food and shelter. Emotional security means that no boogeyman is going to come home, you know, uh, uh, and and scare them and stuff like that. Seen means that they are literally seen, that they exist, and that means by acknowledging their presence. Um, and soothe is obviously times of emotional turmoil um, and challenges, knowing that you are there for them. Now. A child is obviously um, goes through nine months of being connected to the mother. And what's going on in the brain during that time is naturally pathways in the brain are being created of trust and safety with the mother. Now, then the child is born and the mother is typically the one that nurses, feeds, diapers, etc. Which continues to create that bond. The expression that's a face only a mother can love didn't come from nowhere. It came from the fact that a mother and a child bond is indisputable. It just exists. There's nothing anybody can do it, can do to, to take it away. Um, so by the time the child is three, four, five years old, they know their mommy loves them. That's it. it. It was it was implanted in them in such a powerful subconscious way. Uh, in fact, I know of one father. It was a professional. I forgot who it was. A doctor in the space that actually, because of this, he made a point to um, split feeding uh, his 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 newborn child with his wife. That he got up in the middle of the night. Also, yes, maybe he was a really good husband, but he literally did it consistently. And because he wanted to make sure that he was bonding the best he could with his child at that young tender age by nursing and diapering, et cetera. But most of us fathers, um, not purposefully so, you know, we were just around, we're in the background. Then six, seven, eight years old, we typically meet our children. And when I say meet, I'm talking emotionally via connection. And they're smart enough now. And depending on your culture and, and, sect, you know, maybe that means taking them to shul with you or doing some other experience or event. And again, this is where our own unresolved trauma comes in. You know, I, I know, for example, that I was always afraid of swimming. So I made a point that all of my kids have to swim. That's technically like abusive. Of course, it's not the end of the world. But that idea that, again, if it's, if we're, if it's, if we're not aware of it, then, you know, all of a sudden our child has to go to Minyan with us and Shimmer Russell or Rabbi Taub, 
you know, I've had this conversation numerous times, so I don't have to reiterate it about the abuse that goes on. So our introduction to our father is, is very often either just regular or sometimes even, God forbid, negative. Um, but even regular, the problem is that the nurturing that they got from their mother is so powerful. And God created two parents, again, going to back to what we said, why is the father here? There are three partners. Why is the father here? So what the studies have found specifically as it relates to girls, but we'll get to that in a moment, um, is that true self-esteem is actually built up by the father, not by the mother. Um, and mothers don't take it the wrong way. The reason why that is, is because um, the mother already committed so much to the child that the child knows that the mother loves them unconditionally. So it's actually a good thing. I had a story with a family that had a few children, uh, older adult children, their 30s, struggling, and they've been struggling for a while. And the father one day in his 50s and 60s finally came to terms with you know, what he had to do, and he started being there for his daughters. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I was talking to the father, and <clears throat> I was at a wedding. I went over to the mother. And she's practically bawling that she gave her life to her daughters for 30, 40 years. And now every time they call the house, the only thing they want to know is what's Tati's opinion? What does Tati think? And she's like, I don't understand. What, what happened to me? And I explained to her, no, they have you. It's not that they don't need you because they don't need you. They don't need you because they had you. And they know that you love them unconditionally. They never had their father. And therefore, this is like a new, for lack of a better word, drug that every human being and every child needs. And they're just so excited about it that they're like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing since sliced bread. So when a child connects at a certain age more to the father over the mother, mothers, please don't take it the wrong way. It's because they are seeking that attachment and that connection that they didn't get, but they got it from the mother. Now that's across all children, period. Um, you know, statistically, if you look at rates of, of uh, jailhood teens, um, premarital pregnancy and all that, fatherless homes is at the top of the top of the charts. That's, 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 that's where everything begins. You're talking 80, 90%. Um, there were other studies that were done, which I won't get into here, that just show the, the direct correlation between um, emotionally or physically lack of a father. Now, I wanna make it clear, it is, it is not to say, because there are many situations where a father isn't there, either due to, um, you know, passing or other reasons, a, another male and even the mother can potentially fill that gap and fill that role. Mm -hmm. So not, not all is doomed and over if there's no physical father there, but there's this concept of a male figure and a male figure 
is a, a male figure is very, very critical and the critical component that develops self-esteem in a child. Now, I know so many people that have really great relationships with their father, like better than their mothers and still struggle. So, I'm, I mean, I obviously you have exceptions. I mean, you're not gonna, it's not gonna be across the, but I'm, I'm just well, curious. Our, our, um, this might require a different podcast, but right. our interpretation of a great relationship may be very different uh-huh. than yours. So um, I, I joke about this, but you know, sometimes people will, and Rabbi Taub says this all the time. He says there are two types of people, um, those who are normal and those who you really know. Right. Um, so I, I, sometimes people will ask me, well, well, look at this family. Look, they had all this trauma and everything and their kids are married. So I said, I would say, okay, so maybe our definition of success is different. If taking your child to the chuppah and putting a ring on their finger is your goal, then the Jewish spouse is your goal, then absolutely that is a success. Um, so, you know, we would have to get into a different conversation. No, no, I don't want to, it's a very good point. Very good point. Um, I want to, so, so interesting that you're saying that, like, I'm, I'm, it's coming up for me is I'm thinking like, you see a shift in the secular world where you now have dads that are taking off work and when their babies are born and are more involved and fathers that are stay-at-home dads. Is that like a part of this idea? Is that something? I mean, I don't, I, so I can't, I, 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 I just, I don't know where all that's coming from. I think it has the potential to be incredibly healing and positive. What I, what I, you know, my, one of my missions in life, and I don't mean to be political, I'm not, but make dads great again. Yes. Um, I believe that I believe that secular culture has completely devastated, de decimated the impact and the power of fatherhood. And while in Yiddishkeit and Torah, fathers are certainly celebrated, I believe that in our own unique way, we have um, also watered down the impact of father. When it comes to daughters, if you want to um, give your child a shot at a happy and a healthy marriage. Um, it is 100% in the power, sorry, 99% in the power in the hands of the father. That first male relationship that a little girl has will determine how they view half of the human population. There are what, 8 billion people in the world, 4 billion of them are men. Her entire view of the world and of the male gender will be based on how she views her tati. That's interesting. Uh -huh. Let me ask, what are some actual like takeaways that people that are listening can say, okay, I am, you know, not been so involved with my daughter or sons, you know, here and there, to tell them what to do or to give them a kiss goodnight and, you know, pat on the head. What are some like, what would you say are important things that fathers can do to help increase their relationship with their children? Um, I mean, I, you know, the answer is the four S's, safe, secure, seen, and soothed. Depending on the age, uh, you might be chased away. Um, but the neuron pathways in the brain are still being created. So, I mean, we can sit here and I can uh, share stories, but um, when, a, when a teenage girl says, dad, get away, um, and 
dad's like, okay, whatever. I tried. What you actually told your child was, is you really are alone. Um, and I don't understand you. What is a typical teenage girl doing when they say that? They're simply testing the boundaries and they're simply testing to see, you know, does, does my father love me? Now, when I, I'm going into a whole different topic here, none of this is actually being thought out in the brain. We're talking about the subconscious part of the brain where all these emotions and stuff go on. Um, and it's not to say that if a child tells a parent, you know, get away from me, that the parent goes overkill. There's, there's a lot of nuances here. But the idea is that when a child um, knows that their parents are there for them, even if they don't initially react in a way that we, the parent, want to know so we could check the box and feel good about ourselves. Oh, great. I was there for my daughter and my daughter appreciated it. Yeah, that, that may not happen. You'll see that the, the, the fruits of your labor will show up, God willing, in a healthy marriage when she marries a healthy spouse, when she becomes a mother and passes on that same care, compassion, and love. And typically those 12 to 18 year range is, is a challenge, of course, for a variety of reasons. Um, they cannot be taken, they cannot be held responsible for anything, frankly, that they say or do during that age range. Um, again, I know that'll be a, a loaded statement. Um, and, and people have to work with their rub and their, you know, mental health professional, et cetera. But as a general rule, a teenager, especially a teenage girl, will be going through a lot of complexities. Um, and them knowing that you are there, even if they do not graciously accept your presence, which a lot of parents are like, I don't understand. It's me. How could you turn? Like, we start feeling offended that our 12-year-old did not graciously accept our presence because we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. How dare you do not realize that I am giving you of myself. But when we move ourselves aside and we don't make it about us and we're just there and the child knows that we're always there, they will come around. They will come around. And what I have found not only in me personally, but in the variety of stories and stuff that I've seen is that um, they'll, they'll, they'll bring up stories four, five, six years later, like the most irrelevant memories. Um, and if you think about it, even within ourselves, when we go back to our childhood, you know, it's not the major uh, seum that we had or the big whatever. It's typically these little thoughtful things that a teacher or a parent, I mean, I have a 10th grade Rebbe who I'm very, very, very close with today. Um, and, and I remember the, the, the one story that like sticks out in my mind, and I think it was the, the year that I may have learned the most, but the only story I remember was that I once got a 90 on a test and I, I thought I should have gotten a 95 and I went and I argued with him that I thought my answer was right. And he ended up giving me the five points. Mm -hmm. Like my whole, my whole brain was like, everything else was like irrelevant. So these little things that we do, even if we don't see immediate results, which we most likely won't, uh, especially not in children. And, you know, I encourage everybody to understand and read up on how a child's brain develops. And a lot of these videos are out there. You have the, the limbic system, the amygdala, which is the emotion. Logic comes from the frontal cortex. I'm sure you've done all these things, but it's important for people to understand 
that you're not dealing with a fully developed brain. Right. And that doesn't develop, you know, they say 21, 24 for girls, maybe 21 for boys, 24. So it, it takes a while. Right. And it, all of this is a process. Change doesn't happen. We, we want change to happen right away. We want healing to happen right away, but it takes time. I, I know we're running out of time. Let me just drill down a teeny bit on, on that last part. So let's say you're the typical from father and you're guilty as charged. It's that your child's now seven, eight, nine, ten, and you haven't been as present as we now know you shouldn't. Uh, it should should have been. Um, and you're you're so so the solution is it as simple as playing basketball with them, learning the schneid with them? Is it just engage as much as possible? Is, is, um, or is I, it I like I personally like the basketball more than the mishnayas. Understood. We, I, the, I, depends I, on the flavor of your child, of course. Depends on the flavor of your child, yes. Um, and the, the reason I say this is because they may, they may feel that you're doing the Mishnayas for yourself to turn them into a big Talmud Chacham and Chassid. While basketball, you don't have to worry. They'll know that you're doing that solely for them. But yes, there are some practical steps. One of the things that my wife's done, again, you're talking about fathers, but a father can do it is for forever till today. Uh, she, she'll spend 10 minutes a night independently. There's a there's a parenting coach, I think her name is Mrs. Dina Friedman, um, who recommended this and we've done it. My wife has done it better. What I did start several years ago, which as I'm, I'm a little behind that, I'm not as good as I used to be, although I've replaced it with other things, is I would take each one of my kids out every single week for anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes privately. That could be 7-Eleven, that could be a walk in the park, it could be a, a pizza store for a slice of pizza, but I gave private time to every single kid. Um, and, and that's a practical step. If you don't want to, if that's whatever, then literally five minutes with the concept is private time, five, 10 minutes. And, and that's, you know, I would say one of the saddest thing about this whole crisis, and it is a crisis, an epidemic of at-risk children and at-risk adults, is that it doesn't even take that much to make it right, to, to, to turn it around and to make it right, right? Uh, I think Dr. Jacob Hamm, in his interview with Rabbi Shays Taub, said that, um, you know, if, if, uh, if a parent is 60% of the way there, they can, I think that's what he said, with no major trauma, you know, they can, they can create beautifully healthy functional children. So forget this 100% and a parent is, oh, that's another curse and blessing from the HSP. They're all or nothing. So a lot of parents are HSPs and therefore they get into the all or nothing mode where either I'm everything for my child and I'm, or, or why am I even trying? There's no all or nothing. Five minutes here, 10 minutes there, you know, a, a date once a week. Um, and then with the HSPs, you're just a little more sensitive and you make sure that they're not carrying anything on their, on their chest when they come home from school and that nothing's on their mind. Uh, and then in an ideal world, you get a little better where you, you start picking up topics that you know may bother them that they themselves consciously may not even know that, that, that bother them. But if you get to know your child enough, you might, you know, let's just say there's your shluchim, Let's say there's a death in your community. Um, you know, even if your kids don't, even if the other non-HSPs kids don't know it, 
and even if your HSP doesn't say anything, it might actually be somewhere dug deep in the back of their brain and, and may, may be impacting them or either scaring them or they're worried about you or they're worried about maybe they're going to die. It just, it can go a lot of dangerous places. So as you get to know your kid better, you're able to like preempt. I, I think, I think one of the lines you quoted to me from some studies that an hour with a with a parent is a thousand hours with a therapist or something to that effect? Well, no. So what I, what I, the, I, the line that I quoted for you from an article I saw, which goes back to the topic we discussed earlier, the mother and father, which is 10 words from a father equals a thousand words from a mother. Um, but, 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 but yes, your point is absolutely right. It's, and, and Rabbi, there's a little clip going about from Rabbi Talbor. He's literally in tears begging people Yes, therapists are amazing and recovery programs are amazing, but there's nothing like a parent. Um, but I just want to explain that 10, 10 words from a father to a thousand words from a mother again, it's just that a mother compliments a child so often. Everything's cute. Everything's adorable. They always look beautiful. They're always the cutest kid in the classroom. The, the kid already knows it, so it takes like a thousand words. For, for a child to feel like, oh, yes, you know, my, my, my mother, oh, you know, that I haven't heard before. But a father will typically not be as communicative and as open, and therefore, 10 words, a compliment and an insult, God forbid. I'm, I'm so curious, and I want to, we need to end this, but I, I'm curious also, like, because you do have roles in relationships and marriages where the father's more of a sensitive type, and the mother is more reserved and doesn't give that many compliments, and the father may be kind of flipping that role. I wonder if the same is true in those relationships where they're craving the mother in those relationships, even if the father is giving them all of that. So, so yes, you can have that. The only unique thing is that whether the mother is sensitive or not, the mother gave birth to the child, the mother created that bond. Right. That, that bond, bond is very strong. Bond, in, in any semi-healthy relationship, there will be a tremendous bond that's already created okay, with that's the child. All right, well, I just wanna thank you again, Yechanan, for your time. This has been very, very interesting. Um, very informative. I definitely need to pick up this book, some of these books and some YouTube videos. Um, if anybody would like to reach you, what is the best way for them to be in touch with you? <laughs> no, um, the best way to be, would be to go to our, our website, thefsrc.com, okay. www.thefsrc.com. There's a button there on contact us. Um, you know, I, 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 that's the Fresh Starts website. Yeah, that's the Fresh okay. Start website. I do just want to end off because I know part of the reason you wanted me there was to sort of share, share my story. I want to give chizuk to parents and families that are going through a challenge with children. Um, typically, they, a child has to hit rock bottom. And our goal is to be a net very often we invest so much energy and time in, in keeping them from hitting rock bottom. We're like obsessed with it. And every time they maybe hit a level lower, we like, we, we throw in the towel or we're frustrated. A child has to go through a cycle. If anybody's investing in, uh, in Bitcoin these days, you'll know it's a similar cycle. It tanks, then it goes up again. And then it tanks and then it goes up again. It's every stock, the same thing. A child that's going through a, a journey, whatever the cause of the trauma, We'll have to go through a cycle, and our goal is to be the um, the net underneath that. No matter where they are, we meet them, and and I can say based on my own personal story and based on other stories, which we can 
talk in more detail at another time. Um, it works. I saw it with my own eyes. Um, I, I, we're gonna, I don't want to be there. There was a period of time where my daughter did not dress in any way, shape or form with its NIA standards. She had purple hair um, and a variety of other issues that come with that. I think anybody listening to this podcast would understand what other situations come with that on her own completely. She redid all of her outfits. The word Yiddishkeit, Judaism, was never mentioned in our home. We focused on the healthy, happy from, we focused on keeping her healthy. That made her happy. She reconnected with Yiddishkeit, Torah, Hashem, in her own way. Um, I'd almost call her a religious zealot these days. Wow. Uh, but we're, we're going to keep her stable. But I do want people to know that it is a journey. And part of the journey is watching them, watching them crash. And it's difficult. But that it is at those moments that a parent being there and being committed to their child through thick and thin, that's what creates the healing. But you have to let the cycle happen. Wow. I just wanted to, you know, and, and I would love and, to yeah. I would love to interview your daughter at one point. That would be so fascinating. Maybe she would give me the honor and privilege. Um I, I think I think well, I got permission from her to do this, and her and I planned on doing a father and daughter tour. Um, we've talked wow. about it, so I, I can ask her if it's something she's, uh, I think she'd be up to it. That would um, be great. I asked her if I can do this interview. She said, yes. I said, Why, what, what can I say? She said, anything you have to in order to help someone else. Wow. That's so, beautiful. Yeah, it's an HSP thing. Yeah. Know, they can't stop themselves. Not telling the truth and sharing it is part of the unloading. I, I, would, I would say to parents as well that are dealing with children that are in crisis or struggling, that unloading and not that keeping it a secret and sharing with other people and getting help and getting guidance and letting yourself unload that. There's there's no need for shame. There's no need for stigma. We need to end that and start being proud of our children because they are orchids. Yes. The saying that we say around here when it comes to trauma is we just said it last week's laning ki ain't bias asher ain't sham mace. Rabbi Shusterman, you can translate that but um, there's, there's not a family that is not struggling and dealing with these, with this epidemic in some way, shape or form. And rather than all of us hiding in our basement, acting like it isn't happening, yeah. um, there's a world out there and there's a world of therapy and there's a world of hope and it, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. And, and the world is coming around. So yes, it, it, yes. It's, it's different times, Baruch Hashem. Thankful to people like you who are- uh, Sharing are, and out there, yeah making this more more open and available well, and, and this is my this is my first public uh public you know speech so we'll see we'll see how it goes okay uh, well i appreciate your time thank you so much thank and, you for giving me the opportunity uh, wishing you a wonderful day thank Take you care. again bye-bye